The true crime reporter never settles for standing outside the yellow crime scene tape. You knock on doors, dig through records, and cultivate sources to get to the bottom of the story. I'm Robert Riggs, the host and creator of the True Crime Reporter podcast, back with another story from three decades of investigative reporting. In this episode, I pulled out my reporter's notebooks, my law enforcement sources opened up their confidential case files, we sat down together to talk. And you can listen in to our journey into darkness. But before you do, be advised that this podcast is for a mature audience and not for the faint of heart. Some episodes may contain profanity and graphic details of violent crimes. Kenneth McDuff was finally scheduled to die by lethal injection on November 17th of 1998. The serial killer had exhausted his appeals for the pair of capital murder sentences handed down six years earlier. Time was running out for investigators. They wanted to find the bodies of Brenda Thompson, Regina Moore, and Colleen Reed before McDuff took his secrets to the prison graveyard. Serial killer Kenneth McDuff held on tightly to three secrets. Where did he bury the bodies of Brenda Thompson, Regina Moore, and Colleen Reed? McDuff's date with the executioner was a few weeks away. Investigators were desperate for answers. Author Gary Laverne went inside Texas Death Row to try to find out. Laverne wrote Bad Boy from Rosebud, The Murderous Life of Kenneth Allen McDuff. I was never afraid of McDuff because I knew that in the end, um, McDuff would back down uh, from anyone who looked him dead in the eye and was deadly serious with him. And I made up my mind he was not going to scare me. Investigators suspected McDuff kidnapped and murdered more than 15 missing women. Some bodies had been found, but not enough physical evidence to tie McDuff to their murders. The body of Melissa Northrup, the Waco convenience store clerk, had been found a hundred miles away in a remote corner of Dallas County in a flooded gravel pit. McDuff's date with the executioner for her murder was fast approaching. Time was running out on getting McDuff to disclose where he buried Brenda Thompson, Regina Moore, and Colleen Reed. At that time, uh, all, none of the bodies except for Melissa Northrup uh, had been recovered and were missing. And they all knew McDuff did it, but at the time he had not admitted to any of it. And so, you know, maybe there's a chance, a slight chance, but maybe there's a chance that he would talk to someone who um, would be willing to write the story. Gary Laverne went to the Ellis Prison Unit, located 12 miles north of Huntsville, Texas. It's an old-style red brick prison farm of more than 11,000 acres. Inmates raise crops, run a cotton gin, breed cows and horses, and refurbish school buses here. Inmates wear white pants and shirts and black shoes made by fellow inmates in the Texas prison industry. Death Row occupied a cell block inside the Ellis Unit. Some of its inmates were allowed to work in the death row garment factory, sewing new gray pants for prison guards. Guards armed with rifles stood watching sentry towers mounted with giant spotlights. 
three rings of tall chain-link fences topped with razor-sharp concertina wires circle the prison. McDuff first arrived here in 1966, a year after the prison opened, to serve his death sentence for the broomstick murders. McDuff was back where he had already spent more than half of his life, the only man in Texas history convicted of capital murder three different times. Laverne walked up to the Ellis unit's front gate. A guard in the sentry tower lowered a bucket attached to a chain. Laverne placed his driver's license inside. The guard reeled up the bucket, checked Laverne's identification, and lowered it back down. And I said to myself, well, this is one of the largest prison systems in the world, and they use a bucket to check your ID. <laughs> like I said, it is an old-style prison farm. Inside, Laverne found McDuff waiting in a prison visitation room. Laverne avoided shaking hands with McDuff, exchanged a few pleasantries, and got down to the interview. Laverne could not help fixating on what I always described in my news reports as McDuff's dead, shark-like eyes. He had uh, brown eyes that were not, not just like the brown eyes that you would see uh, in most people. They were they were darker. They uh, and they were they were piercing. But he only used that gaze, that famous gaze of his, if he thought he could intimidate you. And and once once he I. I made it clear I was not afraid of him. And, and I didn't say, Mac, I'm not afraid of you or anything like yeah. that. I, I didn't have to. What I, it bothered him if you returned his gaze and you didn't, and you didn't flinch. And again, I made, a, I made a decision that that's what I was going to do. I got extraordinary access to him insofar as the deal was, and, and this is prison policy, uh, as long as you can keep him talking and as long as he's willing to talk, we'll leave you alone, more or less. And so in the end, I ended up sitting down with him uh, for five hours. I think it's exactly like four hours and 47 minutes, but uh, it was one of the most exhausting things I have ever done in my life. Was the exhaustion from trying to get him to tell you something of how he would... Uh kind of race around in other directions and try to take you off the trail or it was a combination of many things number one i knew who he was and what he had done so it it was you know his capacity to do evil things was always in my mind and i don't know how anybody could uh, even approach him without uh, some consciousness of that then secondly, he had been through so many interrogations that he was really good at lying. Uh, I'll, I'll give him credit for that. He, he, could, he could spin a story, and um, I didn't believe any of it because I knew who he was, but it was exhausting just to listen to him go on. Well, he, he was a career serial killer, mm -hmm. you know, interrogated all of his life on different mm -hmm. crimes, so I guess you would develop some expertise. Well, I've, you know, I've been asked uh, about him and, you know, my background is teaching and um, the, the word genius, I think, is an, is an overused term. I think everyone is a genius in some way. He would be a genius when it comes to lying. 
Wow. Yeah, I mean, that good? I, I think I think all of us, um, by virtue of our individuality, have something in us mm-hmm. that is exemplary. And and as a teacher, I tried to find that in every one of my students. But with him, it was just deceit and lying. Macduff didn't give up the location of any of his victims' bodies. He told Laverne everyone just misunderstood him. Stuff and see, you always find someone say something negative about somebody. Yeah. If I was to have been, uh, I'd been out an outstanding quarterback or something, and you was going to my hometown, everybody would have something positive to say. You know. And by the same token, all the way around, you find people that's going to say something negative to me. Okay. And most people that, that was in a, they showed on the news but saying bad things about me, they don't even know me personally. Uh-huh. You know, the pamphlets, they don't know me personally. Uh, but who does know you? Uh, does anybody know you? The, the McNamara brothers, they didn't, never had carried on conversations. Uh, there's very few people that really, uh, uh-huh. that's been in the news media talking about me, they don't know me. You haven't even said I've carried on conversations. Laverne asked McDuff why he spent so much time with streetwalkers. McDuff replied that it was hard to get a date after you've been on death row. Laverne left thinking that McDuff was the personification of evil that was complete selfishness. Macduff was a pathological example of selfishness, complete, total self-centeredness. And like I said a few moments ago, if he felt that if he said something, you had to believe it because he said it. And because he said it, it was the truth. And that everybody and everything existed for his own personal Pleasure. I studied that guy from uh, from middle school on through his execution, and I never uncovered a single example of him being selfless or charitable. His entire adult life was selfishness and self-gratification. Investigators tried another tactic. U.S. Attorney Bill Johnston and U.S. Deputy Marshals Parnell and Mike McNamara recruited an informant. A distant cousin paid McDuff a visit on death row. She's a cousin, second cousin maybe to McDuff, um, but a fairly decent person, sort of in that world, but fairly decent person. I mean, a a decent person, honestly. She was, um, had the bad luck of being related to him. The informant obtained McDuff's directions to where Regina Moore and Brenda Thompson's bodies were buried. Seven years after he murdered Regina Moore, McDuff clearly remembered the exact number of steps to her grave that he dug in a wooded farmland in rural Texas. And it was amazing. I mean, it was like, wow. You know, he, he remembered exactly where it was and he, and he was honest about it, so to speak. And so... The, we had a, we got the forensic t- team out there and they unearthed her. She was skeletal, <clears throat> very, very, very shallow. And, and then the other description, Brenda Thompson. He didn't say that, but that's who he knew it was. But finding the remains of the other victim, Brenda Thompson, 
proved to be a challenge. They brought in a cadaver dog to search for her scent. And that dog tramped all across an acre, probably, of poison ivy vines and thorns and everything. It was so thick you could barely walk through this place. And the poor dog worked and worked and worked and never hit on anything. And there wasn't anything of any description that could be seen. Um, Just nothing. It was nothing unique in any of it. Of course, it had been seven years. Johnston did not want to give up. He went back to try searching again. He used a technique he had learned from a Civil War researcher from the Smithsonian Institution. He rushed to a plumbing supply store and bought a fiberglass rod with a brass tip. It's used to find underground water lines. Johnston methodically poked the ground with the rod. He felt around for soft spots beneath the topsoil that might cover a grave. He was about to give up. And I hit something and it made a a scraping sound. It seemed hard, and I didn't know if I'd hit a rock or what. I got down on my hands and knees, and I spread the dirt away, and there was an off-white-looking object. And I further spread the dirt away, and I grabbed it with my fingers, and I pulled it, and I pulled it out. And it looked to me like a human arm bone. Johnston discovered the skeletal remains of Brenda Thompson hidden in a field thick with poison ivy and vines. Macduff's directions were correct. The terrain had changed since her murder seven years earlier. What do you make that Macduff could remember with great detail where he put a body in a remote area years and years earlier? He he gloried in it and relived it, I think, and I think it was his mental pornography I think he <clears throat> I think he uh, that was his his essence and he used this term I'm going to use them up right what did that mean you know what was what was Macduff thinking um, I I believe Macduff did want to have power over life and death but the torture um They say he was gratified in some fashion by the torture. Um, I don't really, I don't understand that. And I don't know how, I don't know how you get to the bottom of that and figure it out or what was motivating him. But to me, I was with Macduff on a few occasions, very close to him. I was a couple of feet away from him for a pretty good while and I was speaking with him and his eyes were dead. Um, his eyes had no spark of life, had no um, humanity in them. There was something wrong with the guy. And I don't mean psychologically, I mean in his creation. Next on True Crime Reporter, John Moriarty, the prison investigator, tricks Kenneth McDuff into drawing a map of where he buried Colleen Reed. I got him off a death row and brought him out to the scene. We had media there at the time on this bridge nearby the location and um, outside of Waco. And and, uh, 
we actually disguised him and snuck him in past the media in, in one of the cars. And he, he wasn't on the scene more than a couple minutes and said, right over here, even though the terrain had changed tremendously with trees growing and that kind of thing. And sure enough, that's where she was. We want to be your favorite podcast and we'll appreciate your review wherever you are listening to this podcast. If you have a suggestion or know of a case we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. To follow our email messages with updates and bonus information from episodes, please join our fan base at truecrimereporter.com. True Crime Reporter is a trademarked and copyrighted news production hosted and written by me, Robert Riggs, executive producer, Elizabeth Arnold, producer and operations manager, Grace Woodward, producer, Siler Burr, original music for the Free to Kill series, Blair King, sound design for Free to Kill, Matt Stoker, graphics, Brian David Kerr. You can read more about all of our news team members at truecrimereporter.com.